there's me just bad mouthing another pure heavyweight in Scottish media. But <laughs> well, do you know what I mean? Everyone's like, under the bus here today. Listening to Blethered, I'm Sean McDonald, and my guest is Scottish journalist and radio broadcaster Paul English. We talk about the ever changing face of journalism as we know it and the modern phenomenon of clickbait culture. It's a relatively new thing, but it has always existed, albeit in a more traditional form of sensationalist front page headlines. These headlines are just an antiquated form of online clickbait, vague, provocative hooks to pull you in, often with little to no substance or relevance to the actual information within the article. So do yourself and everybody else a favour and just don't click it. We chat about how the working environment of newsrooms have changed and Paul gives some insight into behind the scenes. We're all voracious consumers of media in one way or another, but how much do we really know about what happens before it reaches our ears or fingertips? On top of that, Paul explains how he gave up drinking by accident and how it's benefited him. We talk about how mental health care and support structures need to improve across Scotland, not just for people suffering, but for people around them. And you'll hear about how he went viral worldwide as a result of an encounter with some Canadian beluga whales. And plenty more as well. Just a quick word, Blethered now has a Patreon page to help me bring you even more episodes on a more frequent basis with some really great guests. All patrons have access to two new shows that will be available exclusively on Patreon only, bonus audio content, early access to tickets for live shows and loads, loads more. You can see all those benefits on Patreon uh, and the link to that is in the episode notes. You can have all that and plenty more. Uh, new content throughout the year for just a few pounds a month so there's no producers no researchers no editors no team so if you want to support a grassroots show that's doing all right then the link to the patreon is in the episode notes cheers today in the studio newspaper journalist tv presenter radio broadcaster voiceover artist paul english did i miss anything there (laughs) you got it all well done (laughs) Uh, thanks for joining, thanks for coming down well, Thanks for asking, it's a pleasure to be here I've been trying to get you for quite a while I know Managed to finally snag you You've got a busy schedule, Sean <laughs> I know um, Quite like to talk about a whole load of things yep. Career, changes in career, things that have been happening, things you've worked on Some personal stuff, but I suppose we'll go back to the start So for anybody who doesn't know you, yeah. give us a wee, a wee intro Um Okay, uh, well I've been working in newspapers uh, in Scotland since 1998 Uh, I uh, have been a a newspaper and continue to be a newspaper journalist uh, since that point Um, Combined that, in the early 2000s I started doing some radio work um, with Radio Scotland And over the years just kind of built on that Mm -hmm. as they came into uh, broadcast work as well And... some people who have turned their telly on at different times have been unfortunate enough to to see my mug uh, looking back at them with with, with with various different enterprises over the years. Uh, I think that's when I first met you. Was it the Still Game thing? Remember you were on the panel for yes, that? Because yes. I was the, the Still Game Anorak expert. The, yeah, you were, I remember. Absolutely nailed it. Uh, so when you first started out, was it writing for the Greenock Telegraph? Was, was that your first job? Yep, it was my first my first byline. I will actually there's kinda like there's several firsts if you like. So right, the right. first byline that I'm probably uh, proudest of was my first interview. And it was I went to Glasgow University for, for four years and did an English degree after I finished school. 
And it was that I was actually going off to a decider. I went to uni to do English to go off and become an English teacher. Um, and thankfully, I was saved from the fate of ever having to stand in front of a class and introduce <laughs> myself as Mr. English, the English teacher. <laughs> uh, and I got involved in the student newspaper and magazines uh, at that time. And it was really just as a kind of, you know, I, I, it was probably a way of getting free CDs and, and the gigs mm. and things like that. Um, and then I started, you'd go along every week to, to meetings at the, the, the editorial meetings, which were a, they were a riot. It's, it's interesting to see now the people that have, you know, gone on to work in the media from that point. Uh, but anyway, so you would go, you would go to the, you would go to the meetings and I started to become aware of the fact that actually I can pitch ideas in here and it's like, mm-hmm. I can maybe get to meet some people that I'd like to interview. And the person at that point that I thought I maybe had an in with was Billy McNeil. Because my dad's best friend from school uh, was is a guy called George O'Neill, and he he went on to play football uh, with Celtic. He didn't get into the Celtic first team at that time, but right. he left Celtic and went on to play for teams like Morton and Partick Thistle, and then emigrated to the states and played over there. But he was mates with Billy, right. so I thought I'll ask George if he can get me an intro to Billy McNeill. So my first newspaper interview really was for the Glasgow University Guardian, and it was for it was with Billy McNeill in, in the back room. Uh, of his pub over in Torresdale Street in the Queen's Park. How was he with you? He was really brilliant. Uh, I was obviously terrified. I remember it clearly. I remember coming off the the train uh, at Queen's Park Station and walking along the platform and, and actually shaking uh, the thought that I was going to, you know, sit down and ask this guy questions. And he was, you know, who who on earth did I think I was? <laughs> I us, you know, uh, and, it, and but he was so accommodating. He was so kind of there was no. Um, there was no sense that that I was in the wrong place. He made me feel mm-hmm. as welcome, probably as he would have done. You know, had Graham Spears or you know whoever it was yeah. at the time that would have walked through the door to interview Billy McNeil. Normally in those days, he just made me feel welcome, and he made me feel like I was. Uh, it was a legitimate thing that I was doing, sitting asking him questions yeah. about his career and his history as a Celtic player and a manager and so on. There was one point I remember, and this was probably quite. A, it was probably quite a good early lesson. Uh, I asked him about the biscuit tin. The fabled biscuit tin from the 1980s and early 90s at Celtic Park. There was, you know, the, the, the old kind of lore held that that's where the, you know, the moths and a couple of pound coins maybe lived. If, <laughs> uh, if they were looking to buy a player, they would raid the biscuit tin. Um, and he, he he was stern at that point and he said, um, I said to him, so there was a biscuit tin then? He said, well, whether there was or whether there wasn't, that's not really something I'm going to answer. <laughs> And at that point, that was my first. That was my first. I would have been hyperventilating oh, there. My goodness, I've, I've crossed the line here. So uh, yeah, Glasgow University Guardian was my was my first kind of uh, my first experience of of meeting someone for an interview yeah. and going back. Doing it was actually it was a it was a fantastic that was a fantastic first first experience really because I was meeting one of my heroes, but it was also I had to research, Aye. I had to com- get my <clears throat> questions together, I had to. Ask my questions and then go back and actually write something. And I dug out the cutting when he died, and I would say I'm actually still quite proud of what I wrote with him. Yeah, I would be. I was going to say it's probably a great way to cut your teeth for your first one because it's such a high-profile person to interview. Yep. You got it, so then it's obviously going to make you think, "Oh, I can get other people." Yeah, he's been staring me, so you realise right there is a line yes. I can't cross. Absolutely, uh, and you've had to go and I, I would I wouldn't be able to concentrate. I would really struggle. I met I met Billy um, when I was about. 11 uh-huh. at the launch of a magazine uh-huh. and I was really intimidated by him because he did this jokey like who are you why yeah. are you here yeah. uh, but then he was really lovely and then I met him again when I was 15 and he just treated you as if you were an old pal it's such 
people often get you know deified or people will rewrite history to accommodate what they think the the persona around somebody should be but he genuinely was just that lovely every time I was fortunate enough to meet him just the loveliest guy yeah it's a real skill that though you know you put people at ease in that respect and I think it's a it's a it's a mark of the man and it's a it's a it's a a testament to the kind of character that he was given everything that he had done and given that you know the absolute bona fide legendary status that he carried with him the fact that you know, he was sitting in the back room of his, you know, pokey wee back room of his, of his pub in, in, in the south side of Glasgow and sitting talking to me like you and I are talking now. Just giving you the utmost respect. Yep. What a legend. So, journalism obviously changed a lot, but yep. what was it like in, or has changed a lot, sorry, since mm-hmm. you started, but what yep. was it like in those early days? We were talking earlier when you were at the Daily Record yep. and there was about a gravy train. I mean, how long did that last? Um, well, I... I when I was I was I started at the Greenock Telegraph and I spent um, almost two years there uh, working in in kind of you know local news and, mm. and and sport and 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 features and so on and I think that was it's it's really it's really it was a really valuable thing I would still tell people that want to get into journalism it's a mm. really valuable thing even though journalism has changed dramatically since you know that was nineteen ninety I started there. Um, it's still the, the skills that you get there in terms of actually having to overcome the fear of going to knock mm-hmm. a complete stranger's door and asking them some questions about you know <clears throat> some stuff they might not want to talk about. You, you, these these are these are skills that you you really need to develop. And once you can, uh, once you realise you can do that, it gives you the confidence to you know move on and, mm-hmm. and kind of and do other things. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, there certainly wasn't a. a I don't know what I would call it a gravy train. There certainly wasn't a gravy train at the Greenock Telegraph. <laughs> <laughs> sure. uh, well, I mean that story you were telling about going down to right about Kate Thornton that, sure that, sounded yeah, like a gravy yeah, train. Yeah, that's that. That was uh, when I when I moved. So I moved. I was at the Greenock Telegraph. I uh, local newspapers are renowned for for not paying terribly well, especially yeah. junior members of staff. You know, so I was on a very low salary, and then at that time, what I was what I was doing was I was freelancing on the side for. Uh, guitarist magazine, so I was interviewing, you know, guitarists from mm-hmm. bands who are typically easier to access than the front men because nobody ever really speaks to the guitar players, <laughs> you know. Uh, and there was all, the, the the Daily Record had just launched their, their Saturday magazine back in nineteen ninety eight. So I, and I I knew someone who was working there who got me a few you know gigs to go and review bars and clubs and things like that. But I was obviously I was doing it under a false name because I was working for another paper. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and I kept doing that, and I got. Eventually, I got offered a six-month contract. I think it was at the at the record in nineteen ninety nine, and I moved on to that. And it, to answer your question, that felt to me like I had won the lottery, mm-hmm. you know, because and it still, <laughs> I still wasn't getting paid brilliantly, but I was getting paid better than what I was when I started in local newspapers. Uh, but you were aware of the fact that you were you were stepping into a national newspaper, and at that point, there was still a decent amount of money sloshing around in terms of budgets. Uh, for newspapers and what they would, what they would spend uh, in order to get content. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, I'm thinking back to the late the late nineties, early two thousands, and I think the 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 sale on the paper at that time was maybe I think it was about a million copies that was selling on a Saturday, um, and that's that's sales. That's before you Aye. amplify that to readership. You know, Aye. so these are vast numbers. So there was always a lot of money kicking about. So the idea of sending me down on my first job, this only came back to me recently when I remembered being sent to London with a stylist, Kelly Cooper Barr. 
we hired a photographer, we hired a photographer's assistant, we hired a photography studio, and there was hair and makeup, and there was there was uh, you know clothes were being donated from whatever high street store to you know dress Kate Thornton, yeah. who was the interviewee. Is up. Kate Thornton still kicking a ball? I, she... I mean, I don't even know what <coughs> Kate Thornton does anymore. I haven't a clue. I haven't a clue. The last time I saw her, she was interviewing. Gareth Gates and Will Young after Pop Idols. So you're was, talking about 20 years. Yeah, and that's it. So the thought that, you know, the thought that that <laughs> amount of money was being spent to, to get that, that kind of content, you come back and you think, now, you know, looking back in 20 years, you think, I cannot believe that that, I mean, that was like a, a, certainly several hundred, if mm-hmm. not maybe over a thousand pounds being spent on getting that kind of content uh-huh. at, at that time. Things started to change, you know, Quite soon after that, yeah. people even that were older than me, people that had worked in the industry for longer than I had at that point, were recognising that things were beginning to change mm-hmm. for them because they were seeing that the the budgets in newspapers that they were used to were were diminishing and were being restricted. Are we are we putting that down to the the sort of rise of obviously the internet, citizen journalism, the fact that people are getting their news from other sources, or is it also a mix of the fact that you know money was being hemorrhaged because it can't have been making that much of a profit really? I don't know. I think uh, I, I genuinely. I, I mean, I can't answer that question from from. Uh, I, I don't have the knowledge of, mm. of what the profit margins were like in those days. I think. I think in most cases, broadly speaking, across most newspaper groups, what I hear, because obviously you still, you know, I'm still speaking to people who are staffers in newspapers, mm-hmm. and you know, they go to union meetings regularly, and they hear about uh, the profitability of newspapers, of the actual physical sale of the newspaper, and what that is. Uh, Contributing to the the company coffers of whatever you know, mm-hmm. massive company it is that owns the paper, and there is still a I think by any by any standards I would, I would say it, the businesses involved are getting a decent profit from mm-hmm. the physical sale of newspapers. Not what it was, of course, uh, but they are still turning a profit in most cases. That's that's that is what you hear. Um, then I suppose it then promotes or <sighs> contributes to the whole clickbait culture totally. as well because yeah. papers need to make money yeah. but I suppose that then is just the sort of modernisation of newspapers having you know sensational headlines and stories as well to sell copies so yep. it's just the same thing but in a different form isn't it? Totally if you if you were thinking back to you know if you're thinking back to, to, the, to, the, to the late 90s early 2000s you, you would You'd be standing in a petrol station forecourt or a newsagent or whatever it was and you're looking at a newspaper and, I mean, people's newspaper buying habits, uh, you can kind of frame them in, in, in different ways. A lot of people buy newspapers because they feel that it's, you know, a certain newspaper is, is part of their own sort of yeah. family or, 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 you know, personal identity. Yeah. And it's just the paper that's always come into the house or whatever. But the kind of, you know, the, the, the more sort of floating consumer will maybe buy a paper it, certainly in those days, based on what was on the front page yeah. or what they were uh, advertising was in elsewhere in the paper mm-hmm. or what, what the kind of, you know, the commercial, uh, you know, the giveaways or, or any of that kind of, what that, that commercial side of things as well. Those would be the things that would draw people in. So in that respect, I think what, what, uh, what as you, you say, clickbait headlines and traditional old school headlines. Hi. They're kind of doing the same the thing. same things to make money. At the end of the day, is to make money yeah. in some sort of way. And it's trying to draw you in. I've got some very brief experience of a newsroom yeah. from a, a national newsroom, I'm not saying where. Okay. Um, what year, when would that have been? 
about 12 years ago uh-huh. th- through work experience mainly and uh, it was quite an eye opener and I was told then that oh by the way this is really tame compared to what it was five years previous what were newsrooms like then if you're working in one say we we um you know, the old school journalists boozing on the lunch break <laughs> with screaming um, sub-editors yep. and abusive bullying editors. Yeah. You know, can, do you have any experience yeah. for that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, my first job, um, I actually, at the time, it wasn't pleasant. Uh, but over the years uh, since then, I've been able to look at it with a bit of distance and actually realise that what I was experiencing was... Uh, is something that I probably in the long term maybe benefited from as much mm. as it was highly unpleasant at the time. I have a mixed opinion of the benefits of it or, or the positives or the plus sides of that type of thing. Yeah. So I had, um, <clears throat> I'm picking my words really carefully here because just, right, hold on. So, <laughs> so I'm trying to try, try dance around it a wee bit. <clears throat> Excuse me, sorry for coughing there. So there was a, there's a very well-known person in the journalism industry right. who I had an encounter with because I was doing work experience there and did a wee bit of work there and on the first day that I was in I didn't really know who he was I'd heard this guy's name but to me when he walked in I'm like I, I don't, you're just another guy to me and he said he didn't like the way I was dressed I was dressed for, for a night out which isn't true I was dressed alright he said you were dressed for a night out and take the fucking earrings out while you're in here as well, because <laughs> dickhead here had a diamond earring in. <laughs> it was 12 years ago, right? If it's good enough for Beckham, it's good enough for me. Anyway, so he absolutely slaughtered me. And I basically, and I, I didn't exactly say these words, but I kind of did say, fuck off, mate. I don't know who you are. Mm-hmm. And the guy took a real shine to me, and he invited me into his radio show, um, which he had, or which is, was very popular at the time. Mm-hmm. Um and I, th- I wondered if that was a bit of a test. Somebody said that was a bit of a test. There was bullying things going on against that guy at that time, which I think were upheld. Um, but to kind of go back, I think the things that pressure can benefit you. I don't know if the younger generation, and I sound like a pure old guy, as if I'm not part of that generation, but any 18-year-old coming through now, I don't think they would, with the way things are, the vast majority, I think, would crumble or... They, would, they just couldn't handle it and, and, and nor should they have to handle that's it true, that's true that's uh, true I, I certainly wouldn't want to glamorise that experience because when I was I was 20 22 I think when that happened to me and the guy the guy's no longer alive uh, and I you know I, I, in a lot of ways he gave me he gave me a, he gave me my chance and he mm-hmm. gave me a promotion and I have a lot of things to thank him for actually Aye. you know um, uh, but I, I certainly wouldn't I think I, w- I wouldn't I wouldn't want to to create the illusion that actually those things are uh, a positive experience yeah. you know if you can make it something that you've actually taken a positive from at the time it felt like a very negative experience you mm-hmm. know and I did not enjoy it and I, I certainly suffered for a while after it there was a period after that I was scared to answer a phone I think with yeah. that with that crossover of generations you've probably taken the, the benefits of it um, or taken the positives but it's also then hammered home to you how never to treat anybody yeah absolutely it's like my grandpa talk about being in the mines yep. and uh, being totally abused. And you're like, ah, but it built character. And you're like, right, mate, okay, I suppose you're taking the, the positives from it. But, you know, that newspaper editor probably wouldn't have been as bad as a guy down the mines nope. in the 50s or whatever. Sure. I suppose things yeah. things get better and they develop. Um, boozy? Yeah. Boozy encounters yeah. at lunch? Did they ever take place? <laughs> there, were, uh, there were a 
Yeah, I mean, there was, I, I, I remember at the uh, at the Greenock Telegraph hilariously there was a there was a there was a rule in place when I joined um, where you couldn't um, you couldn't smoke in the newsroom um, during the working hours, and the working hours were something like half past eight to half past four. Um, but of course, people were in early or staying on late. Yeah. And the minute half past four came, folk were just sparking <laughs> up the fags at their desk. Why is that now? Um, but uh, the boozing thing—I I noticed that certainly when I went when I went off to uh, to the record, I noticed that there was there was some kind of not in the department that I worked in in the magazine. Um, it was all younger people that were working there. It was predominantly female and. Um, it wasn't really the thing that you went out boozing during the day. There was a lot of going out after work, mm. uh, certainly. Um, but there were older older people there who... There was a wee pub down the Broomalaw called the Copycat that used to sit right next to the old Daily Record building. And once that got knocked down, the new building got put in, there, there was still you know, a, a decent amount of trade uh, coming out of the building uh, into the Copycat after work. And, and I think some of the older journalists probably did go out for you know a couple of pints at lunchtime or whatever. Mm. But the days of you know the old days of of uh, the stories of journalists going out and getting completely rat arsed and coming into the office and filing award winning you know stories, <laughs> I, I certainly wasn't aware of any of that. But that's probably because I was working quite deep within the the magazine stroke features department at that yeah. point. And there is kind of like a you know to some extent in those days it's not the case now, but there was a kind of you know never the twain shall meet thing going on there where we were all you know they regarded features. Writers as, mm-hmm. as the fluffs, and uh, you know the guys that were, you know, and I was going up to London, going down to London to interview Kate Thornton. They were perhaps quite justified in saying that because you were doing like the sort of feature stuff yeah. and quote unquote more glamorous or glitzy yeah. stuff. Yeah, is yeah. that how the radio work came about? Because you do a lot of radio stuff as well, yeah, don't you? Uh, no, the radio, the radio came about. Um, the first radio I did was uh, for the Fred McCauley show, uh, right, okay. back, back in two thousand and three. And Fred used to have, um, he kind of had like almost like studio wingmen mm-hmm. so Fred would be um, the host of the show it was his show uh, and it was a very much a kind of it was a brilliant uh, quite a rich uh, show in terms of its content it was it was cultural there was a lot of comedy uh, it referenced popular culture it would also go into like the arts and all that kind of thing mm-hmm. so you know and you, you know you'd be there and there would be a musician would come in and sit up at his piano and he'd be performing a track from his, you know, his next album, and then the next thing you'd have Belinda Carlisle come down a phone line from Los <laughs> Angeles. Or whatever. Excellent. You know, and it was it was great fun, uh, but Fred would have a sort of a, a kind of revolving pool of regular guests. That he, would, mm-hmm. he would bring in from newspapers, from comedy, from you know the, the world of entertainment in, in some way, shape, or form. And I kind of was asked to become one of the 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 the, the guys that came from the world of newspapers to to, to chip in once yeah. every every couple of months and it was really from then that uh, I must have done that for a couple of years like maybe like I say probably every couple of months and then I remember I remember there was a trail on Radio Scotland uh, there was an advert on Radio Scotland kind of well not an advert obviously but it was a trail on Radio Scotland uh, to the listener, uh, uh, kind of inviting the listeners to get in touch. This is about two thousand four or five. Inviting them to get in touch to say what they wanted to hear mm-hmm. more of. And I thought, well, I'm a listener, but I'm also a contributor. So I emailed from the listeners' perspective a hundred different things, saying get a hundred different emails, saying more Paul English, please. <laughs> I, I should have done that. Uh, <clears throat> I I emailed in saying you know I've 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 done uh, 
various different things on on the Fred McCauley show over the, the last couple of years. Uh, I'm still like you know 25 or something I think, yeah. at this point, and uh, I I said I, I would like to do, and here's here's the world that I work in. Mm-hmm. So here's what I write about. Here are the people that I will interview, and here's the kind of you know uh, here's the kind of beat that I cover, and. Um, I think just out of the almost the sheer cheek of jumping on a kind of uh, this was like this was this was ostensibly this was for the consumer to feed back on. Yeah. But I was kind of you know going on with the consumer to say, well, I've heard this. Uh, come on uh, to to the listeners, and I am going to take advantage of that by saying here here I, I'm out here as well. I'd quite like to do some stuff for you, and that's I, I get asked to come in for a meeting and. Um, various different discussions were had there was a follow-up meeting after that and then i was asked if i would present a series called comedy heroes which was back in about 2000 and i think it was it 2005 comedy heroes was um which was uh i interviewed the likes of like ronnie corbett and armando Yunucci and una mclean wow. and people like that um which was really 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 a, a brilliantly enjoyable experience to go down to london and you know go into a radio studio with armando Yunucci and uh, I would probably be more nervous doing that now mm. than what I was at the time, you know. Um, you just just dive into it and just yeah, go for it at that time. Yeah, I did. But he had been doing, you know, he had he had he was still a very well known name at that point. Um, mm-hmm. But I did feel that I was confident enough to be able to to do it, you know. And I think that, like, you know, the the uh, uh, Kate Thornton. <laughs> Kate Thornton. <laughs> Why do we keep coming back to Kate, Kate, Kate Thornton, she's been mentioned about exactly, fifteen years. I know. Kate Thornton is the star. Sorry, Kate. Uh, there was all you know, all sorts of folk uh, between uh, me starting and then even maybe doing those radio gigs uh, that I went up and down to London quite a lot and interviewed yeah. you know some some pretty decent names. And I suppose once you've got those under your belt, your confidence maybe starts to grow and you think, well, actually, I, I can sit down in a radio studio and do a half decent interview with someone like Armando. You know, that's it. Like when you break it down, we're all human. Yeah, you know, we're all. Alright, some may be more prominent or have a higher profile, but still a guy. Yeah. You still just sit and have a conversation with somebody. And especially with him, I think what he recognised is, you know, I'm another guy down from, from up the road. Uh, and he was the guy up the road at one point, you know. Is he fully Scottish? Uh, His accent's a bit mental. I need to go back to my notes. I think yeah. he is. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's from Glasgow. Pretty I'm sure. sure I heard him. Right, if he's from Glasgow. I'm probably not doing myself any favours here by bad mouthing one of the greatest <laughs> commentary writers of all time. But just whenever I hear that, that accent. I'll, I'll can I just need to make the point. I hate it. See, like the Jackie Bird accent. There's me just bad mouthing another pure heavyweight in Scottish media. But oh, do you know what I mean? Everyone's like, under the bus here today. I know, but just like the football scores today. Like <laughs> fuck off. Like Rob McLean as well. He's another one. Right, I maybe need to cut that out, but it just it winds me up. I'm calling it out. If you're Scottish, have a Scottish accent, please. If you see if you have one of the mixed accents, that's fine. But if you do it on purpose, I'm just not having it. Yeah, I. Uh, so I. I it screams I, enough, like a lack of authenticity absolutely, to me. Absolutely, I get, I get that. No comment on any of the names you've mentioned, obviously. <laughs> but um, I, I, so I, I grew up in Kilmacomb, right? And my parents come from Port Glasgow. Yeah. And I went to school, in, I went to primary school in Kilmacomb, and then I went to secondary school in Port Glasgow, and all my cousins and aunts and uncles and stuff were from the port, and I, so I very much felt like, you know, I was kind of from both places, mm-hmm. if you like, um, but growing up in Kilmacomb, uh, you, you know, there, there's, there's friends, there's, a, there's a, a very, very good pal of mine who, um, uh, one of my, I remember one of my pals asking, who didn't, who was, they weren't mutual friends, but there was a pal of mine who was a pal of his, mm-hmm. I was Sorry, I was pals with both these people, but they weren't pals. And one of them asked me if the other one was from America, <laughs> just because it, had, it was a slight refinement to uh, his accent. And 
uh, grown up in, in those, grown up in that that part of the world where um, there there were quite a lot of kind of anglified Scottish accents. It made me quite aware of what you've described: the fact that you know, five minutes down the road, really Aye. no one was speaking like that. Aye. Um, and but what it also made me kind of I I I've I prickle less at that now because. Having grown up around these people, I yeah. can see them as uh, genuinely as as identifiably and authentically Scottish as I am. It's just that they sound different. Mm, I get you. I'm more, I'm I'm less tolerant of that, but I can, it's something I can work on. But it, it does bother me when I listen to um, like I've I've recently discovered the BBC Sounds app. Have, yep. you, have you used that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely brilliant. So I'm a big Desert Island Discs fan, right? Apart from when I have to listen to the person who previously hosted it, yes. and again I'm just like, why are you talking like that? Yeah, I think, I think, I don't know, I guess uh, that there's been a climate at some point um, where in order to get on in broadcasting, mm-hmm. and especially if you were heading from Scotland down south, there was, you know, a, a, a tendency to kind of flatten regionalisation right. out. I mean... The opposite, I think, is now true when you hear you, you turn on like Channel Four and a lot of their announcers. It's a lot of regional accents. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm a big fan of the see the music stuff you do. Yeah, I like stuff. You spoke to Deacon Blue the other day. Yep. You did a show, a really good thing about the 20th anniversary of the Man Who. Yep. Uh, the Travis thing is is music something that you actively seek to do, or does it just come about in terms of the work you're being offered? Uh, it, it's certainly something that I. I Again, going back to the Greenock Telegraph, and in fact, we referenced it in the Travis program where I went back to the Greenock Telegraph to find my review that I'd mm. written 20 years ago of, I love of, that. of I The that. Man Who. Uh, and so at that point, I was writing news, I was writing sport, but I wanted to be covering the stuff that I, that I really loved. And yeah. that, that for me was like the world of, of culture and entertainment. And that was kind of the, 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 the world of journalism that I wanted to get into. I'd flirted with the idea of doing sport, and I did do a bit of sports journalism over the years, covering football matches and mm-hmm. you know sports sub-editing. Uh, but I, I, I knew that the thing that I would enjoy most was the thing that the things that I enjoyed most, kind of mm-hmm. in my life, if you like. So, to that extent, yeah, it was definitely something that I, I chose to kind of get involved in. I really had no place doing any of that at the Greenock Telegraph. They had like a one one day a week. It's a Evening, well, it's not evening anymore, but it's a daily newspaper, and I think it was on a Thursday back then that they had an entertainments page, and the entertainments page would generally speak and be about stuff that was happening locally, and there was a really rich and still is quite a rich uh, music scene in Inverclyde, mm-hmm. and it would it would do its duty there. It would definitely reflect what was going on locally, but every so often you would be able to throw a review in of like you know a a, a big band or a, you know you would get to go to a gig and do a review of that or whatever, uh, and so I I kind of wanted in about that kind of stuff yeah. and the guy who edited that page was happy for me to do it because again he needed the content um, and it was from that and from the the stuff I was doing for Guitarist magazine that I kind of um, those those were kind of the things that I used to help um, further my, my case for getting a job mm-hmm. on the magazine at the Daily Record so yeah definitely it was I like something that. I pursued it seems that you've just at that point whether instinctively uh, unconsciously or whatever you've just gone and Forced your own kind of path and made your own kind of identity in terms of professionally. Yeah, I suppose I have. I because yeah. then you know you've, as you say, you've went and done that stuff. The Green Telegraph. You've literally responded to a a plea to listeners to say, 
oh by the way can I do, I'd like to do this and it's happened so yeah. it's a good lesson for any would be journalist or anybody in any profession yeah. you know if nobody's always got nobody's really going to offer you a seat at the table are they no you need to go and kick the door down about yourself I heard recently someone uh, that, that actually works in broadcasting uh, told me uh, about uh, tiara syndrome and tiara syndrome is where you know you've been doing all this amazing work mm-hmm. and you've been thinking that and it has it's like maybe your work's been going really well and you've been you know uh, you've been moving forward and developing and getting the things that you're going for but really you've got your eye on something at the end of that yeah and there are people at the end of that that are making those decisions Mm -hmm. and to some extent there's the assumption that if you just keep doing this work the people at the end of that are going to see that work and they will recognize that work yeah and that's apparently in certain circles that's referred to as tiara syndrome because you're waiting on someone to come and give you the tiara when actually what you need to go up and do is say i want the tiara yeah you know or i would like the tiara i don't think there's a i I certainly am not i mean i would take for that that kind of anecdote to be misconstrued as me you know sort of drumming the table and saying i want to do this it Uh was it was i am interested in doing this and here's why i think i can do it because here's my experience up to now you know so um I, I think there's a fine line between confidence being um, having confidence and not having the kind of chops to back it up. If you see Aye. what I mean, yeah, I and get you. Chops are much more important than confidence. It just comes down to putting yourself out there and having that because I suppose that confidence of being able to put yourself out there is thinking right. Well, I'm not going to die if I don't get it this time. Absolutely. But you know, you don't ask and you don't get. Yeah. Uh, I, syndrome. Hi, I enjoy reading. Your work is, see when I read things that you've written as well, there's a style that's quite distinctly you that seems it's not, which is, I suppose, as a features writer and so on, that's going to come across. But it's not just the information. You can kind of get your personality, you know, through what you're reading, I think. And one thing I enjoyed was what you wrote about giving up the drink, sort of accidentally. Talk me through that, how that kind of came about. Um, Last, so January 2019, um, 3rd of January, 2019 I can almost point to the clock as well and say it was about the back of 10 <laughs> uh, I was uh, my sister's my sister um, had a kind of New Year's a, a late New Year's gathering a bunch of friends would come around there'd be state pie there'd be you know mm-hmm. drink had and games played and guitars out and songs sung and all the rest of it and um, it, I, I remember thinking I got to I had like a chest infection I think at the time and you know I, I was just like I'd had I was sitting. I remember sitting with a bottle of Corona in my hand, thinking, "I've had a bottle or a bottle of beer or a glass of wine or something in my hand since about one o'clock this afternoon. Mm. I'm not. I don't even really feel drunk. I, I, why, why am I doing this? And I'm coughing. I'm coughing, 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 coughing. I'm not giving myself the chance to actually get any better from mm. this chest infection that I've been carrying for a few weeks. So it was simply that. And the talk turned in the room at that point to anyone that had done the dry January thing before. And I was always like quite suspicious of those things, thinking this is just virtue signaling on social media. Aye. Or in the, the one that comes later in the year, uh, Sober October, it's about fundraising. Fair enough. See, I find that funny, though, that some uh, does it sum up our culture where we're like by the way I'm going to need you to donate money to me why because I'm not boozing for a few weeks you're like fuck of off that. wow that's amazing <laughs> at least go on a sponsored walk or something you prick you want money off me <laughs> I know exactly <laughs> get to like skydive off the finishing crane or whatever it uh, so I I thought at that point right I'm just I, it was just purely a, a, a health decision and I yeah. thought oh, I'll, I'll you know I'll hitch myself to that giant dry January wagon um, mm. because you'll have the kind of almost the structure of the support that other people are doing Aye. and 
I hadn't bothered with non-alcoholic beers. I hadn't even really looked at them. I hadn't tasted them. I hadn't thought anything about them. And uh, I remember actually being at a do one night. I think it was the BAFTA. And I'd interviewed Limmy a few times. And Limmy had to talk to me. The first time I interviewed him, he talked to me quite frankly about his issues with addiction and yeah. how he'd managed to get himself uh, dry and so on. And I remember talking to him and being aware of the fact that in my peripheral vision that he was holding a bottle of Bex. And I was like, oh my God, like he's back, he's he's back, back, on he's back it. in the drink. And it wasn't until he was like swigging it that I realised it was Bex Blue. And that was actually my first ever, like I'd never seen Bex Blue before. I didn't right. know what it was. Um, that was a few years before. But anyway, I... Uh, Is your mattress making noises it never used to? Or is it sagging, causing you to... Then it's time to get a new one. Get the best sleep at the best value with a Nectar mattress. Prices start at just $499. And you get $399 in accessories thrown in, a 365-night home trial, and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com. I then started to, I thought, well, I was out one night with a couple of mates and I was trying to let a couple of like iron brews or something. I was like, can I actually, these are not a substitute. This is like making me feel sick. I know, you wouldn't, because you wouldn't sit in the house and have like eight cans, or maybe some people would, but you wouldn't have eight cans of iron brew. No, I mean, I, I mean, I probably have a couple of years or something like that. I think I don't, but uh, so I, I discovered, um, one of the pubs where I live in Shawlands uh, has, in fact, two of the pubs have like you know beer fridges where it's yeah. like all the different craft ales and stuff and craft beers, and uh, Erdinger was 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 one of the alcohol free beers that I first tried and thought, well, that's uh, that's actually really really drinkable and it tastes yeah. tastes just like beer, mm. you know, it doesn't taste like. Caliber, which didn't taste like beer, it tasted mm. like non-alcoholic beer, which was the only probably non-alcoholic. I had, I had beer a non-alcoholic tasted. San Miguel at New Year. Uh-huh. I had two sips of it. And Did I was you like, not drink it? Fucking rotten. Do you ever drink that one? I, I've drank. I've drank like. I, I mean, I feel as like I'm on a bit of a, a voyage to to drink them all. Now, but uh, I. I found what that did do, and this was the thing that I found was 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 kind of like most interesting from my point of view. And probably a lot of my mates are like, "Oh, here he goes again, talking about the being after bevy thing." Mm. But it was the placebo effect of being out on a night out with people and drinking beer in a glass, in a pint glass. And I still do it. Last night I was out and I had two uh, Heineken Zeros poured into a pint glass. Mm-hmm. It comes to the table looking like a pint. And there's there's part of your your, your kind of... your. Uh, your Your psychological response to that is... Well, that's a pint, Aye. and so it's probably it's it's probably firing neurons that have been firing in your brain for the twenty or thirty years that you've been drinking. That sort of euphoric effect. It's just like you just feel that you you definitely. I've I've had, and this is this might sound like bullshit, but it, it's it's the absolute truth. I've had nights out where I've had like maybe three or four different uh, non-alcoholic beers, or I've had like pints mm-hmm. all the way through the night, and after maybe a few of them, I just feel that. I just relax that you get when you've had a couple of pints. So have you? Have you not been? Have you not drank that Since whole then, time? No. So that's like fifteen, sixteen months. Uh, this is coming on for fifteen months, yeah. And I 
didn't really didn't intend to do it. Really did not intend to do it. January, that first January was was the hardest month, and it wasn't until I found non-alcoholic beers and discovered that that placebo effect is actually legitimate. How do you feel physically now? Before we talk about mentally, well, people don't. I mean, there, I, again, I stumbled across various different websites like the one year no beer thing. This is mm-hmm. like six months into. I didn't even know there was such a thing. Aye. And then you know, I discovered there are, there are all these other. Uh, websites and, and various different kind of social groups and movements and so on that are that are built around this idea that you can still have the life that you had before, but just not be drunk, you know. And when I say not be drunk, I didn't have a, I wasn't, I wasn't like, I didn't have a problem. I'm fortunate to say yeah. uh, with alcohol, and I've there's been people, uh, you know, that I've, that, I've, that I've been close to in my life, uh, you know, at different times that that have, and you know, I, I'm I'm not equating what I've done with getting off an addictive cycle mm-hmm. it's just not the same thing at yeah. all and I would hate for anyone to think that it, what I'm saying is if you've got an alcoholic issue then actually you just go and get yourself some non-alcoholic beers and you'll be fine Aye, but it, I, I suppose it is it, you're, you're, you're sort of displaying the, the benefits because I mean I'm assuming mentally do you feel a bit better do you feel sharper more productive Um, I, I, if, if I, I think I wrote in that article that you know I've noticed some changes, uh, but there's been no great epiphany. There's mm-hmm. been no, and this is what most people say. That's what I, I tend to find the narrative around this giving up drink thing has been propelled by mm-hmm. this idea that actually it'll be the new you. Yeah. And I haven't discovered that. I really haven't. I just feel like I'm no longer the guy that's pushing it to three o'clock in the morning. I'll still be out maybe at one, but I'll Aye. know that when the time comes, when folk aren't making any sense anymore, I'm off ski. And actually, I can drive home. No, so there's you're... no standing about in the Mitchell Street taxi or Gordon Street taxi rank waiting for <laughs> all the horrors of that on a Saturday Aye. night. See, I think my thing, I, I'm fortunate not to have any major issues and I could go and drink every weekend. Yeah. Uh, and I ha- have done for most of my adult life. But what I find is that more and more, I'm hazy and I'm just at 50% of my best yep. for about three or four days. Like yeah. that, that weekend there, I hammered it. Yep. Had a great time. Had great fun, and probably if I was to go back to Saturday afternoon again, I would mm-hmm. maybe choose to do it again because I had a great time. Yeah, but it's the aftermath. Mm-hmm. It's like Sunday, I can't get going. Monday, Tuesday, I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. I can't find any joy in anything because my head's busting, yeah. and I just I'm not my best. I find that it's a case, it's a, a choice between everything else in my life going at full pelt instead of like in terms of professionally being able to go to the gym, work wise, and doing this you need to be sharp as well absolutely and it's like oh god there's just this fog and it takes a few days to lift yeah um and then what will happen is you know a few terrible months sunday monday tuesday wednesday comes and i feel better i'm back at the gym thursday gets there yep. i'm feeling brighter and i'm like right boys are we going out friday <laughs> and it's this cycle and it's just yeah. having to break that for some people yep i can't speak on behalf of others who are having a really tough time yeah but i i do say often if you think you know you're not in the best place, yeah. is your brain hazy? Are you struggling to find joy or happiness in anything? Yep. Don't drink. I think if you're not in a good place, take a wee bit of time off, even if it's just a few weeks to recalibrate. I've had uh, a couple of pals. Um, uh, in fact, with a few folk that are like you know people that I'm 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 quite close to, and other people that 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 are you know maybe kind of casual acquaintances or whatever, message me after I wrote that piece because um, mm. I didn't I didn't go on social media about it at all. I didn't mention it uh, publicly Aye. that I wasn't doing it at all uh, in that whole year, and it wasn't until I wrote that piece that people kind of became aware of it. And a few people for for that, 
for that reason that you just mentioned there, a lot of people were, you know, different things going on in their lives or whatever. And sometimes it was like coming home and, and cracking open a bottle of wine or, or reaching for a couple of bottles of beer in mm-hmm. the fridge or whatever was helping them through and, you know, realising that actually this isn't a great place to be yeah. and and recognising that actually there are potential alternatives. There, I, I've, 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 um, uh, I've one friend who, who, who kind of, uh, chucked it for the duration of the summer, um, and her drink was, um, was was wine, and uh, my advice to her was, uh, you know, uh, you need to try and find an alternative, a yeah. suitable alternative that doesn't make you feel like you're not taking part. And I think that's tougher because if you're a wine drinker, uh, my experience is that the wine, the non-alcoholic wine, doesn't taste like wine. Yeah, it doesn't have the same. Uh, you don't have the same uh, physical experience, and and you know I, I'm I'm no expert in drinks, but I know what people are talking about when they're saying things like you know mouth feel and you know yeah. it doesn't feel the same when you're drinking it. What I have experienced in uh, the non-alcoholic beers is that they kind of do, and so I feel that's been that's made that a little bit easier for me mm-hmm. because I don't feel like I am missing <clears throat> something. I'm I'm actually just you know I'm having the same experience. It's just that. I'm staying sharp, and I think it's tougher for people whose drink of choice would be spirits or wine because I don't think they've cracked it in terms Aye. of tasting the same yet. That's it. Then you've kind of hit the nail on the head there. It is the experience. Like I, I don't drink in the house ever. Yep. It never happens. Even at my age, I'll still my idea of relaxing is a bar of chocolate and a can of juice. Yeah, like to sort of oh, I'm going to crack open a can of Iron Brewing again. Um, and it is, like I love being out. I love being social. I love the buzz. I love the tunes. I love yep. everybody. Just that whole energy. Yeah. And that's where I struggle because I'm like, oh, I still want to be doing that. And then you get there and you're like, oh, fuck it, I'll just have a, I'll have a few drinks. So it's probably something worth considering for anybody if that is the biggest thing is the social aspect or the experience that you can still go out, but there are just, there, you need to find your alternative. You do. It's certainly been my experience, whether, you know, I can only speak from that. Um, but for me, that has been the the thing that's kept me from... I don't have a desire to drink again. Mm. I dare say at some point in my life, I probably will have, you know, I'll probably, I'd, I'd imagine that I may return to drinking at some point. Yeah. Who knows? You don't know what your circumstances are going to be like um, or what your what your life's going to be like. You can never tell. But I um, I would say it's, it's definitely finding a, finding a replacement is, is a, that doesn't make you feel like you're not doing something has, has, mm. been, has been a big deal. I spoke to a friend recently who uh, she... She she referred to being um, the 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 high of the crowd, the crowd lift. Yeah. So and she was actually referring to it in terms of friends of hers who who smoke pot, and she said that they um, she can be around them. She doesn't smoke pot, mm-hmm. and she she can be around them and feel like she's getting high and being lifted by the crowd or getting yeah. the same getting it. And and I I'm not I'm not by the way suggesting that that's what we should do, but. I've felt a similar thing where it's, and this does sound wanky, but it's the energy of the energy, like being being out. There was one night when I started the 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 non-alcoholic thing, where I was kind of like I was trying to get the drink to the table without anyone seeing that it was non-alcoholic beer, yeah. so that there wasn't that conversation about why you're not drinking, mm-hmm. and you know, and and there's also the consideration that other people maybe feel a little bit awkward, and you don't want that either, you know. So having that. Um, Getting that to the table without without that conversation happening was quite important to me at first. Then 
you know, I started to be a bit more open about the fact that I wasn't drinking and, and, and it, you know, people that I would go out with would know that that was the case and mm-hmm. it was not really an issue. You would just get an non-alcoholic beer at the table or whatever. Uh, but I would find that once they'd had two or three drinks and that we, the, 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 the energy, you know, people relax more, they're maybe, you know, their humour shines a little bit more yeah. and, you know, the, the conversation will maybe get into areas that it wouldn't have done had people been sober. Mm. Because the majority of the group that you're with are going there, I have found that I just end up going there anyway. Aye, aye. You know, and that you're I've I've been out nights like, you know, you're out dancing at one o'clock or whatever and sober. Aye. And I would just like, you know, a year and a half ago I'd have been like, nah, couldn't do that. They're not gonna remember anyway, they're all steaming. Exactly. <laughs> but it's just it's, it's, it doesn't feel like I'm I'm pretending or that I'm I'm kind of, you know, making myself see the moment through I'm being naturally carried along in the, the dynamic of, of what's created with the, with the group of people that you're with it just so happens to be that some of them are drinking and some of them aren't two seconds sorry I can say this because it's part of the podcast my, gran- phoning. my grandpa keeps phoning me I'm oh. meeting him for lunch <laughs> right I don't know how many times I need to tell him I'm recording Hold how, on. how long we got oh we've, we've got all right we've got a wee bit left bring uh, him in I know I should no he'd get me I'd get me the jail Two minutes. <laughs> I'm in the studio. You old cunt. Fuck up. No, I'm joking. I'm in the studio. I'm in the studio. Uh, I want to hear his stories about being down the mines. Oh, do you know one of my favourite ones is he says um, his first day down the mines. He was like thirteen. Oh fuck! There he's phone me again. I just text you. He said he was down the mines at thirteen. First day, and he says the only reason. Before I say what he said, he went, no reason I didn't get my cunt kicked in is because the guy thought I was kidding on. He turned out the big guy beside him and went, excuse me, what time's playtime? And the guy started laughing. He was like, hey, he's asking when's playtime? And he's sitting there like, when is playtime? It kind of breaks my heart and makes me laugh at the same time. Um, I don't, uh, see what you were saying, you had to hide the non-alcoholic booze. Yeah. That's probably another point to make if if you're somebody who is all right, but let's just say your mate comes out and he's no boozing. Mm. Don't be a dick, man. Don't give him a hard time. Like, just just accept it. If yeah. he doesn't want, if if he or she doesn't want to drink, then yeah, then don't be part of that problem because you're really not helping. But it's we've 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 such a long long way to go. I oh, mean, that, that is it is becoming a it is becoming a, you know a more recognisable kind of you know uh, movement, if you like, in 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 society. You, you know, the stories are sloshing about all over the place about the rise in sales of non-alcoholic beers Aye. and. Uh, and and that kind of you know sober um, uh, that sober movement, but I I, I do think that we've, we have because it is so completely ingrained in uh, in our everyday society that <sighs> it's it is it becomes a talking Good. point. And to some extent, we're you know me talking about it is actually probably perpetuating that kind of difference about Aye. it. You know, the, the Scottish relationship with booze is a very unique one. It's like oh, it's raining. Should we get Stephen? Oh, oh yes, it's Sun's sunny. Out. Let's go and Let's get steaming. And the, the other thing, the whole pre-drinks, I know pre-drinks is something that people do all over the world, but yep. it's so funny to be like, I've got an idea. See, before we go out boozing, let's, let's, go boozing. <laughs> let's stay in and do some boozing. <laughs> like, fucking hell. Um, it, it, there is a link, though, to into the sort of mental health aspect. Yeah. And obviously, as a society, we're becoming a lot more aware of that. And it's something I talk about on here, you know, mm-hmm. when it's relevant. Um Usually to people who are experiencing it firsthand, but what you often don't hear is the the impact of the experience of people who are living close to people with you know very poor mental health. You know, it's something that you've had experience with. I mean, how is that? You know, being on the periphery or having to watch that. Um, I mean, it's uh, it, it, that it, it's 
it's an experience that is probably more uh, common to more people than 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 we all go about our day thinking. Yeah, you know, we probably uh, what I, what I've noticed over the past few years is that there has been a shift, and I think it's to be welcomed uh, towards um, encouraging people to talk to each other mm-hmm. about their mental health and to have dialogue uh, as part of everyday society about you know the the importance of protecting your mental health, um, the things that you can do to improve your mental health, the things to look out for that are going to have a negative impact on your mental health. I think all that is really important, mm-hmm. and I think that you know I was I, 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 I was talking to a friend in the street recently who had her teenage daughter with her, and. Uh, the teenage daughter had come off some social media for a, a period of time. Um, she said because, and she said it was straight face, and there wasn't any kind of, you know, it wasn't there was no sort of mawkish sentiment about it. She said, "I'm just doing it because I want to protect my mental health." Mm-hmm. I thought I wouldn't even have known what you were talking about when I was your age if you'd said to me mental health. Aye. I wouldn't have known what it was. Um, and so I think that's that's to be welcomed. That there's a there's a generation of people coming through now that are that have an awareness and the fact that it is something that is being encouraged to be spoken about openly. What I think needs to change is, or where it needs to go beyond that, is that for people who have experience of trying to access care for people who have poor and recurrently poor mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, and and kind of critically, you know, poor mental health or points of like extreme crisis. And you don't need to, you know, you don't need to dig too deep in order to to, to access those stories. Uh, you know, the 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 story of of the family through in Dundee recently, who lost uh, they lost a member of their family who had been reporting to um, the healthcare system to mm-hmm. say that you know he was in real distress and and he ended up the 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 guy took his own life in the end and he didn't get the support that he needed. Those stories are are quite commonplace, Aye. and um, it's that dialogue that I think needs to be um, projected more. The dialogue around the care that people are needing to access mm-hmm. and the ease at which their carers and their families and their friends can get it for them because mm-hmm. it really isn't easy and there are there are there are so many so many limitations and budgets there have been so many cuts made services aren't what they need to be um but it's also things like for example getting getting the care that a person who has a very extreme form of of um mental ill health at the upper end of the disturbance scale mm-hmm. that person may be presented with uh if 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 say family or friends have have uh, contacted the crisis teams who deal with psychiatric emergencies if that person is living say in the community mm-hmm. and the crisis team are the um sort of response service uh, to that that's a cry for help then Sometimes you'll be faced with a situation where the person um, has has such a the 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 grasp of reality has disintegrated so badly mm-hmm. that um, they 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 can no longer act and can sound judgment at all. The crisis team may turn up in a situation like that to access that person because they've been alerted uh, through the family or the friends or whatever, and to try and assess them, and to to assess them as to whether or not they are in need of emergency. Uh, mental health care. Mm-hmm. One of the things 
that can prevent that from happening is that the responders have to ask for consent to the so that if if you're the person who's presenting with really really extreme yeah okay symptoms and I'm the responder coming to your door to say uh, your family or friends have been in touch with me to say that you're having a really really tough time and that things are you know you might be in need of some some kind of critical healthcare at the moment is it okay if we come in hi you like, I I'm and you come and if you say to me no <clears throat> yeah you need to go they need to go and that person is just left twisting in the wind and yeah. I, I, I I've been in the sharp end of that dynamic yeah. uh, a few times over the years and that's really, really distressing because then what has to happen is it needs to reach an even greater crisis point where you're talking police, where you're talking other emergency services who perhaps aren't as well trained mm-hmm. in the nuances of yeah. of dealing with people who have extreme psychiatric ailments. Is it a case of, obviously, societally we've come on leaps and bounds yeah. and sometimes it'll take us in terms of you know medically or even what's the word I don't want to say constitutionally but you know what I mean in terms of the the official structures that are in place to catch up so it has to be you know we have to get up up to to speed yeah you know double quick there needs to be a much more I think there needs to be a a, a much more integrated uh, healthcare sort of support system mm-hmm. um, where where different agencies are, are, are linked they, they are to an extent I'm not saying it's all it's all my experience of it is that it's not universally bad. It's not. There's a lot of really good stuff going going on out there. And by the way, there but for the grace of God, because it's not work that I could do. Yeah. Um, I genu- I genuinely could not do it. I uh, yeah, really take my hat off to anybody yeah. who who can who works in that that area because I couldn't do it either. No. I would I would be incapable. And and these people are are so it's, it's at no point as my my own uh, understanding and perception of feeling of it is that it's not the fault of the individual it's the fault it's the fault of the system yeah and the system isn't and and often cases it's not been designed to actually respond uh, with the best intentions of or, or rather having it's not been designed to respond to to preserve the health of the person who is in critical need of. Their health being preserved at that particular point. How how do we influence that change? Does it start for having grassroots conversations like these, and then influencing? You I know, think so. Yeah, and I think you know I've written I've written to to, to MPs, MSPs mm-hmm. rather. I've you know I've I've uh, spoken to people about it. I've spoken to my friends about the situations that I've 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 encountered uh, through that, and I think that's what I mean when I say that. It's fine to. T- I think it's good, and it shouldn't. It shouldn't. It, 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 we certainly don't want to return to the days when people didn't discuss mental health. Yeah. But what needs to happen is we need to discuss the mental health service and the mental health provision, and uh, we need to address where it's failing, and we need to be asking questions about why it's failing. And you know, the wife of the of the chap that I, I referred to there in Dundee. She's doing a really good job at the moment of of making people aware of the limitations in the service mm-hmm. that she encountered, and it's a horrific story that she's had to you know she's had to endure. But it, but it's something that people really need to hear. So as well as talking about mental health, we need to talk about mental health care and identify yeah. where it isn't working and what needs to be better. I suppose that is a natural progression, isn't it? First, it's the um, removing the taboo and the stigma, which yeah. I think has well and truly been done because now, you know, globally it seems to be s- such a pressing conversation. But yeah. as you say, the uh, the care and the provisions available are the only way, or the, the next step 
because nothing's changing. It's all, no. I don't know if it's just that we're more aware of it, but it just seems to be that things are getting worse because it's every day or so. I'll, I'll scroll down my Twitter and I'll, I'll, you see the same things. Oh, there's somebody moaning about her boyfriend. Oh, there's somebody complaining to a company. There's somebody taking their life. It yeah. really is becoming that that normalised. There was a there was a point I remember coming across a tweet and I can't remember who who wrote the tweet, so I can't give them the credit for it. But I did retweet it at the time when Scott Hutchison took his life. Mm-hmm. Um. There was a lot of chat around on Twitter. I remember, um, you know, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the stuff about talking to each other and about, you know, um, all, all, all of that, all that, that dialogue about speaking to each other about your mental health, mm-hmm. um, which, as I say, is a good thing. Um, but someone actually who followed Scott's work really closely, and you know, news news songs kind of word for word, yeah. news lyrics inside out, said. Scott was Scott was talking about this constantly. Yeah. I mean, he was writing songs about it. I think he was I standing saw this. on stage in front of people singing about it. Mm-hmm. How much more can one person do in terms of actually talk? So talking about it is really important. But we need to talk about what we're doing about it. Aye, what we're going to do? You know, it's no use just, just acknowledging it. it anymore, no. is it? Not by <clears> itself. Definitely not. Well, I hope even having these conversations and you speaking about that is. Um, is one wee step closer, I suppose, um, and it, there's value in it. So I hope people take something from that. I don't yeah. know. I don't know how to direct, what to direct people to, but I, I mean, the 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 importance of of having a a a, a, a kind of an immediate community around the person who is suffering from mental ill health is 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 really critical, mm. and um, that is something that 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 I've been fortunate enough to. To be a part of, yeah. Um, and there's a real, there is a real. Uh, it's, it's really, really important. Uh, but, but what I think is difficult for people is they don't know who to speak to. Mm. Oftentimes, they don't know where to, to raise their voice or, or or to make their complaints and so on. And and that 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 is that can feel like a real struggle because you do you feel quite isolated when a system isn't serving isn't serving the needs of the person who really needs to rely on it and you're you're seeing it you're seeing it failing them and you don't know where to go in order to say this isn't working anymore mm. you know so i suppose it's just about keeping keeping definitely keep talking about why it's not working and asking questions and making people aware of the fact that it and, and if it isn't working, tell people. Send a letter written in blood to your local MSP. Yeah. Um, whatever you need to do. Yeah. But yeah, that's it. Keep having those conversations. On a, a lighter note, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to take it. The, I, I love this story. I really love this story. I want you just to tell it in your way. The beluga whale thing. <laughs> How mental is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, to end yeah. on a lighter note. <laughs> end on a lighter note. Yeah, uh, yeah it was. That, that was... Um, so you were on holiday in Canada, was uh, well, it? Well, I was on a travel writing trip in... Uh, it was what in Ma- life. Manitoba in, in, in Canada. And we'd gone there because it was it's it's one of the natural territories for the polar bears. Right. And you get to see the polar bears in, in the wild. And we we were there for, for the, the we were we were being driven around this area. It's a very, very remote part of um uh of Canada. It's Is it Alberta? It's Churchill. It's Sorry. the town the town's called Churchill uh, and it's in Manitoba. Right. So it's subarctic. Um, and the Hudson Bay basically kind of touches uh, the kind of you know Churchill sits in the bottom end of the mm. Hudson Bay, 
And we were being driven around on the first day, um, and there's a lot of First Nations people living there. It's quite, uh, it's it's had its, its troubles over the years mm-hmm. um, uh, in terms of uh, the economy and so on, because a big storm washed the railway line away, and it meant it was cut off effectively. Shit. So they were really relying on tourism, which is part of the reason why there was a drive to get travel journalists right, okay. and so on. And so we were there, and we were being driven around, you know, taken out to the, the spots where they say, well, you know, tomorrow we'll come here and we'll we'll, we'll park up here. And We'll get you know everybody will be given kind of you know a set of long range binoculars and we might see the polar bears away down at the water down there. All oh, right, great. But every single you know one of the fascinating things about being there was every single door that you went through, whether it was an internal door or an external door, it had the warning polar bears sign. You know, and what to uh, do if if you were. If, if you were faced with a What's polar bear advice just run faster than the guy beside you don't run actually as as one of the pieces of advice um uh but but also like for for example they don't you're not allowed to lock your car in Churchill because people might need to escape into your car hell. from a polar bear uh and m- before I got onto the Volga wheels we, we were driving around there we were, we were looking uh kind of just around the landscape it's quite barren it's quite you know it's quite raw yeah and the the Churchill River comes down from from the Hudson Bay. Uh, alongside the town, and I, I, was, I was kind of like going along in this bus, going, "There's look, that was a whale, there's a whale or a dolphin or something out there." And the guys <laughs> going, "Oh yeah, we've got beluga whales that come here. And in fact, you can go out, um, you can go out on a on a boat and you get a chance of looking at it. All oh, right, okay. So that was something we we decided we were doing at the end of the week. But before that, my one of my one of my colleagues and I would decided we would go. There was like two pubs in this town, and we would walk up to the pub, and we would we would um have a couple of drinks and then come back again. And that night we were walking back. And by this point, we're aware of the fact that, you know, round, round any corner there could be a polar bear. So you're kind of in a height, you got a wee bit of adrenaline just yeah, walking yeah. down the street. And he and I were kind of joking. We said, what would you do if you saw a polar bear? And I'm going, <laughs> Fill my nappy. I'd probably go into that. I'd, I'd, I'd go for that house there and try and get in there. And he's going, I'd probably get into that car. So, uh, like, who can go fastest? You know, who's going to, what one, what one is, is the bear going to get? So, we're walking back to the, the kind of motel that we were staying in. Got into the motel, off to our bedrooms, and I get into my room, and I was aware of the fact that there was a huge light flooding outside my room, and it's just tundra outside your room. So, I pull out the curtains, and I'm like, what's going on out there? And Bear Patrol. We're in the back of the hotel because uh, a polar bear was indeed in the street oh. when Steve and I were walking back from the pub. But it was round the back of the motel, and the motel is just like you know one of these uh, you know strip motels. Aye. So it's the it's the it's the it's basically the width of like the corridor and the foyer in a room. I've so, got my head in my hands here, imagining a polar bear a polar, running at you. Polar bear round the back of the hotel. At the host, uh, the motel, and See if I had six beers in me, I'd be like, I could take this guy. <laughs> <laughs> a left uh, and a right, but uh, yeah, so that that was a bit of a thrill knowing that wow, there was actually there was a we did see them uh, in the wild after mm-hmm. that, but um, it was the it was the the, the kind of like the, it was almost like the polar bears are the A activity, they're the real reason you go there, Aye. and it turned out to for me, it turned out to be uh, you know the beluga whales because what they did at the time was they took us out kayaking, yeah, and the yeah, the GoPro on a GoPro, yeah, and the guy the guy told us you know you'll have a good chance of seeing the whales, um, but uh, if you if you make high pitched noises, mm-hmm. then 
that you know they might they might surface and they're they're quite curious creatures and so on and so I just, just take a wee bit of Mariah Carey on your phone see what happens. <laughs> I was I was singing I I just I was singing uh, at the top of my the, the top of my singing range like I was right <laughs> up in the falsetto uh, just random stuff and uh, sure enough that the, uh, the, I mean there were beluga surfacing you could see them surfacing yeah. But I, I became aware of the fact that my kayak had boom, bumped. What the hell was that? And then there was a beluga on the tail of my kayak with its with its nose pushing my kayak oh my through God. the water, spinning me around. And for about an hour or so, I had a couple of beluga whales basically toying with my kayak. And so I caught all this on, 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 my, on my GoPro. And the next day, they took us out um, into the Hudson Bay and this is no longer an activity that they that they do because the laws in Canada have now changed. Um, but I went off the back of the of the uh, of the skiff in a in a dry suit, so wearing like every item of clothing that I had because mm-hmm. you can into like you know freezing, freezing cold, cold. Uh, and you're tethered by your feet with a with a rope to this boat and floating about in the. <laughs> The subarctic waters. I wish people could see my face. My <laughs> face. If if you could describe this expression, it's fuck that. Singing. Uh, I think to be honest with you, uh, I mean, some people have said that to me actually that they couldn't have done it. And what else is down there? Oh. I didn't have that thought. I th- my only thought at that point was I want to see these whales. Out Can here. they be aggressive? What if uh, one just goes like, nah, you're getting it? I, I, they're, they're not known to be aggressive. I don't think there are any... Are they like dolphins, like quite playful? Yes, I don't think there's any examples of them of them being aggressive towards uh, humans at all. I had no concerns about being in the water with them because I hadn't been given any concerns. And as, as subsequent to what happened, um, I looked up you know, beluga whale behaviour because they were mm-hmm. they were I was singing right and they appeared you. and they were singing it was like they were responding uh, back to me and I was like, Well I want to know what this behaviour is. <laughs> we beluga whale swan about like I love that song what up is to this office. But for all I know it was like it was an aggression display or Aye. you know, but um anyway I captured it all on YouTube, stuck it up uh, not on YouTube, I captured it on my GoPro GoPro. GoPro. Stuck, stuck it up <laughs> speaking like a beluga. Uh, stuck it up online and uh a company in the States got in touch with me and asked if they could buy it. Oh, no way. So that, that ended up being, it's something like 60 million hits. Was that a good wee earner? It was all right. I mean, it's not like, I've not managed to buy a yacht or anything like that. Aye. But um, Money's money, in it? Yeah. I bet you this tourism guy, or whoever organised that, is probably going, fucking yes. Like, well, I would say they were probably probably felt like they'd satisfied their brief and getting, yeah. getting uh, a couple of journalists. Getting over, the yeah. word out there. Yeah. That sounds absolutely class. I'm going to go away. If you've not seen it, where can people find it? That is, uh, it's on. It'll be on YouTube. It's on. It's on YouTube. Beluga it's whale on, kayak. It's on, all sorts of, it's on the dodo. It's on Facebook. It, I beluga whale kayak singing. Um, You'll find it. Yeah. Apologies about my singing. If anybody does. <laughs> if anybody wants to get in touch with you, how? What's the best way for them to do it on your Twitter page? Yeah, at Paul English Hack. Paul English Hack. You've been a wee bit harsh on yourself there. I always take that term to be a, um, a, a, a kind of tongue-in-cheek reference to uh, what people refer to journalists as. I, 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 I almost think of it as an, a term of endearing affection. Yeah, you're almost. only a hack if they don't like what you've written, That's usually. Right. <laughs> you're getting your defence in early. <laughs> Someone did call me a hack a while back and I was like, I beg your pardon. How dare you? And they said, well, that's your Twitter handle. Well, fair enough, can't argue with that. Paul, this has been this has been great fun. I've enjoyed it, Sean. Thanks, mate. We'll speak again soon. Thank you very much.
your every day with out of this world action from the gritty apocalypse of the walking dead universe to the cyberpunk realm of the watch and the criminal underbelly of gangs of london amc plus is more than entertaining it's epic feel all the chills and thrills with shutters halfway to halloween month experience shutters biggest month of horror featuring a new season of creep show and new movie premieres every week all available ad free and on demand start your free trial today at amcplus.com 